A very good morning to you all, and thank you for the honor of coming alongside you under the life-giving authority of the Holy Word of our God once again. We return to Luke's Gospel this morning and again to chapter 7 to pick up our reading where we left off last time with verse 11. Luke chapter 7, we begin our reading in verse 11 and read down through to verse 17. Luke chapter 7 from verse 11 to verse 17. As we read these words, brothers and sisters in Christ, let us remember these are not merely the words of any man, but the words of the living God, and let us hear him. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Amen. Let's pray. Ever-blessed and faithful God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, this is your word, and we are your people who live by the word you give. We pray for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ, whose body we are, that in the ministry of your most Holy Spirit, this word would prove wonderfully fruitful in each of us and among us all, that we might be to the praise of his glory, which we seek in his name. Amen. Luke is the only one of our gospel writers to tell this story. Why would he do that? It reminds us, among other things, that there are many, many stories that could be told about Jesus that are not told in the gospels. And that if the gospels were really about entertaining us, we'd have a lot more of this kind of thing than we do. Why then are the things included that we do read about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Well, John's the most explicit in explaining the selectivity. These are the things that are written so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ and believe in him to have life in his name. He says in his gospel, many, many more things could be said. The books in all the world could never fill the stories that could be told of Jesus of Nazareth, the God-man among us. But these are the ones written, these are the ones included, so that you will believe in Jesus Christ. 
The Gospels are not about entertaining you. They're about leading you to the waters of life in Jesus Christ. And Luke includes a story no other Gospel writer does. Why does he include this one? This is, of course, a resurrection story. Jesus raises a young man from the dead. Well, one uh, probable reason why Luke would include this at all is suggested to us a little later in this very same chapter. A little later, Luke is going to tell us about the disciples of John in conversation with Jesus, and Jesus will encourage them that everything John has been announcing and looking forward to has arrived in his ministry. And he will say it this way in verse 22 of the same chapter we're reading right now, chapter 7. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Well, in fact, Luke has talked about many of those things already so far in his gospel. But the one thing he hasn't given us any stories about yet is the dead are raised up. So now he gives us a story where the dead are raised up, which sets us up to appreciate in verse 23, of 22 and 23, that everything Jesus says to John's disciples, Luke has just said, have happened in Jesus' ministry. All right, very well. Now we know one reason why Luke tells this story. But is there more to it than that? Well, if, if we're supposed to hear these words not merely as entertainment, not just as great fodder for novels or films or storytelling around the dinner table. If we're to hear in these words a summons to life itself, it suggests the special importance of how Luke finishes the story. What happens after Jesus raises this young man? Fear seizes upon all in the crowds who are watching this transpire. And they all glorify God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. Well, this is really important for Luke to tell us about. Since the way Luke has written this little story in verses 11 to 17 is deliberately, and in many, many different ways, deliberately Luke's way of telling us that this prophet, Jesus of Nazareth, is the greater Elijah of promise. Now, of course, as we were reading this passage, you thought the same thing, didn't you? You're thinking, as I read this story, boy, this sounds very familiar. And you're exactly right. Luke is, in fact, drawing a range of particular features from the famous story in 1 Kings 17, when Elijah raised a widow's son a widow's only son. And you remember that in Luke, uh, 1 Kings 17, Elijah the prophet lays his whole body prostrate on the boy three times. And then, in prayer to the God who is life, his prayer is answered and the boy is raised from the dead. The importance of Elijah and Elisha 
and the way Luke preaches the gospel of Jesus is something we find throughout the first half of his gospel. Elijah and Elisha are recalled to memory over and over, especially here in verse uh, chapter 7, starting with what we saw last time, uh, the story of the healing of the centurion's servant, which is deliberately written to remind us of Elisha's healing of Naaman in 2 Kings 5. Naaman and that centurion are Gentiles, you recall, and both of them have servants. Both send emissaries before them. Both change their minds along the way. Here, in verses 11 to 17, the raising to life of the only son of a widow at Nain displays an even stronger effort to recall the raising of the only son of the widow of Zarephath by Elijah in 1 Kings 17. And to some extent also, the raising of the only son of the widow of Shunem by Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 4. In 1 Kings 17, just as here in Luke, Elijah calls on God as Lord. And Jesus is here called Lord in verse 13, in the healing at Nain. When it says in 1 Corinthians 17 that Elijah gives the boy back to his mother, it's as though Luke is saying, yes, don't miss this. Let me tell you, Jesus then gave the young man back to his mother. Don't miss the connection. Luke is saying. Why? Because he is saying it is not merely a prophet among prophets who is among you, but the one the prophets look forward to has come. Not the one who has to seek life from another in order to raise from the dead, but the one who is resurrection life himself is among you. And so a little later in this same chapter, make sure you tell John the Baptist that. Tell him that. And here, friends, we would all be tempted, wouldn't we, to think, well, isn't that wonderful? Isn't that lovely? Listen to all those beautiful theological connections and, and typological connections that I now know are there between Luke and, and 1 Kings. Now I have all that I need to take this away with me and revel in the beauty and wonder of beautiful truth and ideas all is well, please say the benediction. But we will have missed the pulse beat of the passage. To be sure, we can't hear the heart of the passage without knowing these things about what Luke is doing. But so central to what Luke is telling us is that the reason it is good news that the God of life has come is because the vulnerable need that good news. And there is no more vulnerable figure in the biblical world than this one. A widow who has lost her only son. Not long ago, I was watching an episode of this series you may have come upon Edwardian Farms, maybe that says too much about me. And I was watching, uh, I've seen a few of the episodes, and I was watching one some time ago where a young man was trying to recreate the practice of Edwardian farmers in creating makeshift uh, uh, fish nurseries for salmon. And he had made his little contraption and he is carefully explaining why every little step in the process is so important. 
Uh, salmon are born in gravel nests at the bottom of a stream and riverbeds in the form of slightly translucent eggs about the size of a, of a pencil eraser. You can ever so faintly see the dot of black in the center, which suggests the very beginning of what one day hopefully will be a salmon. The eggs are pale pink in color and very round spherical in shape, and it takes two to three months for them to hatch. And during this time, uh, the, the farmer who is, who is raising them needs to be extremely careful about almost an infinite number of considerations in watching and studying these perhaps 2,000 little eggs from one, from one salmon. 2, 000, up to 2,000 eggs that are streamed along these metal rods uh, over running water from the local brook or stream in this wooden contraption. He has to watch them very carefully because any number of things could go wrong. And as soon as one of those eggs starts to turn white prematurely, you know it's dead. And you have to remove it from the lot or all of them will die within hours. After those eggs have survived their first two to three months, they enter the stage where they are um, about an inch in length and they are still attached to a yolk, a nutrient-rich Yolk, and they are completely dependent upon this until it is finally absorbed. And then they are these tiny little inch-long things uh, swimming around in the riverbed looking for a rock to hide under while trying to find something to eat. And hoping they're not eaten by a bird or a, an insect or a, another fish in the river while they continue to uh, make their way downstream as tiny fish. And I'm listening to this story, and I'm marveling that any fish survive at all. Why are there salmon at all? If their existence is that delicate, how can any of these make it? And then I was thinking about how regular the experience is of a parent who has their first child. And as the first child is, is born, and they knew this was coming for months, for what's felt like ages. When they're finally presented with the child, they're at the same time marveling and horrified. Marveling at the wonder and beauty of the thing, horrified at the prospect of getting this wrong. This child is vulnerable. And uh, the more we learn about the human body and what happens within us that makes us living creatures and keeps us alive, the more we marvel that this phenomenon that is enclosed within the very thin covering of human skin is held together at all, functions at all, survives at all. How does any of this work? How does any of this survive? We are vulnerable creatures. We are utterly dependent creatures. The slightest thing can completely upset what we think of as normal life. We're here this morning thinking look, life looks a certain way, but isn't it the case that if you go home this afternoon and get any one of a number of possible phone calls, what you thought normal life was can completely change? The diagnosis, the news of a car accident, 
and a range of other possibilities. Even on your very way home, you are utterly dependent on others. And on your body responding to your summons to do this and do that, push this pedal, not that one, turn this way, not that way, we are horrifyingly vulnerable creatures. Now, to be sure, this puts our modern condition in a certain perspective. It helps us understand why many have noted that while it's true that our vulnerability is ultimately a matter of our fear of death itself, this is why vulnerability can be a scary thing. We don't want to die. We are at the same time caught up in a mode of life in our day saturated with efforts to keep us from thinking about that with efforts to postpone and perhaps even infinitely delay the reality of our coming death. Even otherwise good or perfectly acceptable things are distorted along these lines. As others have noted, not merely the reality of cosmetics, but the industry of cosmetics is driven largely by the fiction that you can indeed stay young forever and is feeding the desire to secure that. Much of what now goes under the name of the medical profession is driven by no different an ideology than that and has far more, ever than ever before, far more to do with perception of the good life than the reality of life itself. Even the way good things like exercise and sports are commended and encouraged can suggest the same kind of twisted vision of the good life as, as though the good life is really a matter of eliminating as much of our real vulnerability as possible. And this, of course, informs the most destructive of contemporary trends. The idea that you don't need anyone but yourself. And you create a world unto yourself, and you don't need anyone around you. And the goal of a really good life is radical independence, so that you don't need your mother, and you don't need your father, and you don't need a church family to belong to, and you don't need others, period. And you will realize your potential fully only to the extent that you have loosened and ultimately tossed out every voluntary relationship, which is now every relationship. They're all voluntary. And we can toss them out in the name of self-realization. A way of dealing with our vulnerability. When we account for the form of our life now in those terms, this passage explodes from the page as good news. Good news not in the form of suggesting we aren't vulnerable after all but by pointing us to the only resolution for that vulnerability. Can we imagine the scene for, for just a moment? It could be helpful to remember what we're reading about. In, in, our, uh, in our story, in, in this passage, this history of Luke chapter 7, Jesus is accompanied by his own disciples, but we read there's also a sizable crowd with him. He's described as an itinerant rabbi with a large following here in verse 11. 
And as he's making his way the 25 miles from where he was in Capernaum now to the little tiny village of Nain, he gets close to the gate of this old town. And he and, he and his retinue, those who are following him, uh, encounter at the city gate where all the important stuff happens in any ancient city. Uh, at the city gate, as they're approaching it from outside, there's a group leaving by way of the city gate that they encounter right there in the city gate uh, square. And what they encounter is a funeral procession. A funeral procession making its way out of town in order to bury a beloved family member and friend outside of the town uh, where, uh, where proper burial is taking place. Now, attending to proper burial etiquette was a very important work of mercy at this time. And based on deep-running biblical concerns found in places like Exodus and Micah and so on, incumbent on every Israelite is that you satisfy good burial etiquette. You respect the reality of death, and you respect the effect it has on others, and in so doing you put on display you are a people called for life, where death has no natural place. So participation in funeral proceedings was not simply a social expectation, it was in fact a rabbinic requirement. Even one of the most stable and loftiest pursuits in Israel, study of Torah, was suspended and set aside for funerals to make sure everyone associated with the deceased could accompany that body to the place of burial outside the city. Now, in Galilee, so you can picture the scene, it was customary for men to walk in front of the deceased and for women to walk behind. And in both the front and the back, you would have hired mourners. Put that on your job description someday, on your CV and resume. Hired mourners whose job it was to join with the musicians with their instruments in mourning with and on behalf of the family. Now, that might sound very odd, and for that reason I make the remark I do, but in fact it's reflective of a communal recognition that the fulsomeness of grief needs its due. And sometimes those who are bowed down in grief are without voice themselves. And one way that you ensure that the wrongness, the deep wrongness of death is called out for what it is, is you moan and you mourn and you weep and you make sure it's heard. Now, of course, to be sure, that tradition becomes distorted into a way of making sure you stay in good terms with the family. Look at how I'm mourning alongside with you. Did you hear how loud I was uh, when I sang that dirge with you? To be sure, it could be misused like every good thing can be. But at heart, it's a way of ensuring that the full-throated no to death is heard. This is not the way things are supposed to be. Jesus, with his group, encounters a funeral leaving the city. And then Luke gives us what we must not miss. In fact, without which this is not much in terms of good news anyway. What's the cause of this funeral procession? It's the death of what Luke very carefully tells us is the only son of his mother who is a widow. 
the only son of his mother who was a widow. Again, this recalls Elijah. But it recalls Elijah as both accounts are folded into this one indescribably anguished reality. Now, we, we already can appreciate in our context, can't we, that the special bond, as controversial as this may sound to some today, the, the special bond of a mother with a son. This is not to suggest fathers don't love sons. Fathers love sons. And fathers love daughters. And mothers love daughters. But there are centuries of serious philosophical reflection on a phenomenon that seems constant throughout history. That the, it, it's not a more or less question, but the quality, the kind of love for a mother, for her son, is something that defies standard description. So already we can appreciate a mother's love for her son, and now you're saying her only child, her only son? And you're telling me she's a widow as well? What a loss this must be. But friends, we may be in a less optimal position to really understand what's going on here because of the fiction we have been told in our time that all of your relations are voluntary. And that your self-realization means separation and independence from all those relations on which you are dependent, which remind you of your vulnerability. Let me explain why. The, re the, the only way Jesus' miracle works is if we re-enter the biblical world where husbands are responsible for the protection and care of their wives and children. And fathers embrace the responsibility they have to care and provide for the security and welfare of their home. You have to have that in place for this story to make sense, for it to work at all. Because that's exactly the tragedy here. The one person in her life who was there to ensure her security whose very job description entails that he loves her and he provides for her and looks after the home and ensures their security, has died. Her husband has died. So with his death, the son is looked to as providing that kind of, a measure of, that kind of security and provision. Because this is still a world, in the biblical world, where sons honor their mothers. And sons don't merely love their mothers in the sentimental sense. No, they, fifth commandment terms, honor their fathers and mothers, which in fifth commandment terms is primarily a, a promise to provide for them in their age, in their elderly years. This is a son who the reader expects, and it's assumed you will expect, understand the inherent dignity of the responsibility attaching to being the son of a widow, that you are the one obliged and therefore with the grand opportunity 
in the, in, the, in the stead of your tragically deceased father, to be the one who can be in the home ensuring your mother, no, you are not completely vulnerable. I will honor you. I will honor you by providing for you. Your, your concerns are mine. Your interests are mine. And the scriptures are replete with examples of how that's fully assumed to make various stories work, and in fact explicitly commanded. So much so that children who refuse to do this for their parents are excoriated for their folly and selfishness. Now, in this biblical world, it's not a matter of how lovely that mother is, whether you like her or not, whether she's particularly pleasant to be around, but the fact that she is your mother is sufficient. And he's died. Now what is she going to do? If you take into view the entirety of biblical legislation, all of what we call the Torah, you will notice a surprisingly disproportionate amount of attention is given when it comes to laws. A surprising amount of, a surprising amount of disproportionate attention is given to women in three, the three ordinary stages of their lives. There are all kinds of laws directed to the welfare of women in three stages of their life, as daughters, and therefore as virgins, as wives, and as mothers, and then finally as widows. All kinds of biblical laws are, are customized to ensure that these three stages of relative vulnerability are fully accounted for. And how does God provide for them? in a variety of ways, telling Israel as a whole and the men in particular, this is what it looks like to be faithful and responsible. There's no commentary here on some kind of natural inequity, some kind of uh, lesser value for women than men, or a weakness along the lines of, of intelligence and ability, no, nothing like that whatsoever. No, it's instead a matter of the dignity belonging to being either a man or a woman, means that the relationship in its harmony looks this way, that the glory, which is the woman, is advanced and flourishes as it is secured by the one who is her husband. And when that is gone, the question that is, a, that is a pulsating question throughout Scripture is where then will be the glory, which is the fruitfulness that requires that kind of relationship. This is a woman who is, in the biblical world, most vulnerable. And you can read any amount of literature about what life was like for widows and for those who were legally widows because they were divorced unlawfully by their husbands and therefore abandoned, who had the same status as a widow. You can read about the vulnerabilities of their lives economically, in terms of physical safety, in terms of um, uh, prospects uh, for um, domestic life, having a family to call her own at some point in the future. All these things are major and regular parts of the vulnerability of women at this time. So here is a woman who has lost her husband and who has lost her only son. And the compassion of the God of Israel who meets the brokenhearted and 
uh, grief of his people in Jeremiah, in Amos, and in Zechariah, is present in front of her, in the very face of her agony, and tells her, maybe disturbingly, don't weep. Don't weep. Now, what protects us from misunderstanding Jesus' word as harsh and insensitive is the other thing that we are told when Jesus says this. Verse 13, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and therefore said to her, do not weep. It's not a lack of compassion. It's precisely from compassion that he says this. But why would that be the case? There's nothing wrong with weeping. Luke, in his own gospel, a little while ago, records Jesus giving as a beatitude, blessed are those who weep. So there's no problem with weeping in view here. What's the point here? What does compassion have to do with don't weep? Wouldn't compassion sound like, let me join you in your weeping. I'm going to join the mourners to your left and to your right. I'm going to join their song and let's see if I can encourage you in your weeping. What would compassion B, that could account for don't weep instead of I, I understand your weeping. It's in the same verse. Something that Luke says, based on that passage about Elijah in 1 Kings, that gives us our aha moment of why this is good news for the vulnerable. In verse 13, when the Lord saw her, when the Lord saw her. This is not merely a prophet who can give the life he has been entrusted as a steward to another. This is the one who is life itself. This is not merely a prophet of the Lord. This is the Lord. The only world in which it is ever appropriate to speak to a mourning mother in a state like this, the words, don't weep, the only world in which that is, that is remotely okay and appropriate is if she is encountering the one who is resurrection life himself. And so she is. And his compassion begins with saying, don't weep, don't weep, but then the words are not sufficient. He goes on to act. Setting to the side all concerns with cultic purity, he touches the bier, that is that frame on which the, the coffin, the dead body, is, is raised as they are making the way in procession out of town. He touches it. The bearers don't know what's going on. We read in verse uh, 14, they stand still. And then as they stood still, as his hand is on the bier, he looks away from the woman, he looks at the dead body, he looks at the young man, and he speaks directly to the young man as though he can hear him. And he says, arise, arise. And the dead man, we read, sits up. And then to prove a restoration of his whole humanity, that he really is present, that this is life from the dead, he's given a voice, he speaks. And then, of course, the story ends, right? And everyone praises God and goes home. No. 
What else does Jesus do? He does what Elijah did. Jesus, verse 15, then gave him back to his mother. Two things, just briefly, as we finish our reflections and meditations on God's word this morning. Two quick things about what Jesus has done here. I don't know about you, but I'll presume that you have had the thought cross your mind that often crosses mine. Okay, I know that in the resurrection to come, you have said, Lord, that whatever feels like loss in this life, for your sake, will be exponentially restored in ways I can't imagine including even the nature of my relationships with my wife and my children and my friends, the, the quality of those is going to give way to something very, very different. And you're telling me it's going to be infinitely better. And I trust you. I trust you that it's going to be better, that it's going to be exponentially more, that what I've lost in this life with lost loved ones who have died before me and lost friendships, people I've lost to death, people I've lost to moving, people I've lost in other contexts, you're telling me I'm going to, I'm going to gain all this in some way, not the same way, but some infinitely better way. You, you, I know this is what your word teaches, and I believe you, but boy, is it hard to imagine. This little passage, when Jesus restores him to her, is, as it were, a gentle pledge on that promise. What you think you have lost, what you're sure you have lost, you will, you will regain in a way you never dared imagine possible. Here is good news for those who wobble a little bit now and then in their confidence that it really can be that much more glorious to have returned to us in the future what we know right now only as loss. But the second thing this little, this little addition in the story tells us is that as the Lord of resurrection life, this one who died now more than ever came under the domain of Jesus himself. And as he raised him to life, this one belonged utterly to him. He's the king of the kingdom of life. He's the king of the kingdom of resurrection. This young man belongs utterly to him. He, he is his to give. And he uses that sovereign right to meet the need of a vulnerable woman. And he, who, whose young man that was, gives him back to make sure she is vulnerable no more. The young man was his to keep or his to give. And he did not bless this woman by filling her bank account, by healing her of all diseases so that she would live a lot longer without troubles at the doctor. Uh, he doesn't restore or enrich her life in individualistic terms, as though to say our need for one another is a good thing, not a bad thing. 
Our vulnerability where we are dependent on God's gift to us of other people is a good thing, not a problem to be overcome. As a way of saying that most clearly, he doesn't send a bolt of light from the blue right into this woman's life to give her another hundred years of biological prosperity. He doesn't inject her with economic stability. He gives her her son back as a way of securing her welfare. The son who presumably will do right by her. Friends, our, our need, rather than the options, luxuries, our need to belong to a church body, our, our need for one another as husbands or wives, our need for one another as children need their parents, and parents will need their children. These are not problems to be overcome by your radical independence. There are no lone ranger ideals in the Christian faith. These are ways in which the Lord invites you to trust him and to rest in him as he himself is life and he has blessed you with what you need by way of his people. But this also requires that we hear these words not merely as interesting or entertaining, as full of pathos and emotion, but that we, whatever we may think of the sermon, hear in what Jesus says to this woman what he says to you and what he says to me. Here we encounter, in this word, we encounter the one who is life and who calls us away from trying to secure our own welfare on our own terms, in our own independent ways, and who calls us to himself, who warns us away from counterfeits and invites us to deep wells of the water of life, who is, as the psalmist says, who is the salvation of his people and therefore can give salvation to his people. May the Lord grant us grace to be found faithful as husbands and as wives, as sons and as daughters, as brothers and sisters in the family and household of God. Above all, may he grant us that grace to rejoice in our utter dependence upon the one who is life and who faithfully gives it. Let us pray. This is our heart's desire and our prayer, our Father and our God, that you would lead us more fully than ever to rest at your feet and in your arms with joy and gladness, and to rejoice in the opportunities you have granted us in your providence to look after one another, not in your place, but instead in your service. Grant us grace to this end, we ask, for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen.